Isaac. If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the same ten verses that we started last week entitled Cherry Picking. And just so you know, what we are about to study today is very dense, it is deep. And for those of you who may be new in your faith, maybe young in your faith, or maybe you don't have any faith at all, this is a very dense piece of meat. And, but we are committed to teaching God's Word regardless of how it makes us feel or regardless of what we like. God's Word is true, and what is on that page is, us, is for us to consume so that we might know our God better. Amen, church? That's why we're here. The Word of God transforms life, not TED Talks, not little snippets that get us through the day. The Word of God transforms our lives. And we're going to pick up, actually, in verse 48. And it says this, Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel in the synagogue. The Jewish people there get very upset because they're teaching that Gentiles can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone without full conversion to Judaism, and they're ticked. Pick up in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard that they didn't have to get circumcised, how many men? No, let's move forward, all right? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of, of the Lord. And it as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a, a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And when they, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust off their feet and protest against these people. They went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's ask God's blessing, and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are God. I want to confess in front of these people that I don't completely understand this. Father, may I speak boldly and with conviction what you have said and walk humbly in the areas I don't fully understand. But you teach this throughout your entire word. Father, we confess that oftentimes we approach your Bible, your word, as in a way that would just help us. Oh, that we might approach it because you gave it to understand you more. Father, we want to know you more. We submit what you say about yourself as truth. We submit to it. I confess my sins in front of these people, Lord. Lust of the eyes. The pride of life. I confess that. Help me to teach your word. Give me clarity of thought. And again, as always, Lord, these people belong to you. They are not mine. Father, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And I pray this, Lord, and I ask this in your son's precious name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. 
Last week we spent our time setting the table for what will be, without question, one of the densest pieces of meat in the Word of God that it has to offer. It is so dense that many people refuse to even taste it. Many will refuse to even nibble on it. Their their teeth have not developed and they reject it. Some will even get angry and break fellowship over this piece of meat and leave a church over it. This doctrinal piece of meat is found throughout the Word of God. Yet, truth be told, many Christians simply seek to, to not recognize it, to not even look at it, or simply not see it. The problem is, is that God spoke about this piece of meat in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke about it in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The apostles teach it in their epistles, and the Holy Spirit is active in it. And that subject is the predestination of God, the elect of his choice. Now, some of us may say, what in the world does this word mean? Well, let's define it in the most simple and straightforward terms. But before we do that, let us remember what we studied before last week before we introduce this piece of meat. We cannot cherry pick the Word of God. Amen, church? We cannot cherry pick the Word of God. It is not a buffet of our choosing. We cannot ignore what we do not like and and elevate that which we do. Let us remember what Augustine said when he said this. If we only believe the parts of the Bible that we like and we dismiss the parts of the Bible we don't like, it is not the Bible that we believe but ourselves. So here is the most simple definition I can find on predestination. Predestination is the sovereign act of God whereby... He freely and sovereignly chose certain people to be saved. And we don't like that. We don't like God being in complete control. We like a God who gives us control. Now, before we wince at that and dismiss that as some sort of fringe doctrine, let us understand that the subject of election and predestination is found throughout the entire Word of God. Did you know that the Bible has roughly, just a little bit over, 31,000 verses in it? And just to impress you, I have memorized nearly five of them, all right? But over 31,000 verses in Genesis through Revelation and the subject of God's uh, uh, sovereign predestination is found on average every 120 verses out of that 31,000. So depending on your font size of your Bible, in fact, if you have the correct font size like mine, you will find predestination or the election of God every two to three pages in the Bible. Every two to three pages, it pops up, depending on your font size. Here's just a a few of them that we'll bring up on the screen. So why bring up such a controversial subject? Why bring up a doctrinal piece of meat that may, at the end of the day, only serve to divide the body of Christ? And my answer is rather simple. I don't bring it up. Are you following me here? Who brings it up? Talk to me, church. Is he allowed to bring up whatever he wants? It's our job to submit. By the way, there's wonderful application, and I would contend that this elevates the grace of God beyond our comprehension. 
God brings it up. And by the way, he brings it up constantly. My friends, when the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God, it means it is a gift of God in every possible way. God sought it, he planned it, he purchased it, he conquered it, he lived it, he bought it, and he placed it in our cold, dead, spiritual hands. The gospel is a gift in every possible way. My friend, no one seeketh after God. It blows my mind that the church tries to design itself around someone seeking God when God says no one does. When a person believes in God, they are simply responding to what God has already chosen to do. In fact, let me make it crystal clear. Stephen Cole just nails it out of the park when he says this, our choice to believe the gospel is not why God elected us. God electing us is why we chose to believe the gospel. Wow. That kind of takes a lot of control out of our hands. In all of those verses that teach this doctrine of election, none are more important than what we'll read today. John Calvin said this, verse 48 is as unqualified a statement of absolute predestination than any other place in the Bible. But in these thoughts, we come to some challenging questions. If predestination is true, which we know it is because God spoke at every third page, can you, have you ever been around someone who constantly brings the same subject up? Anyone at all? No matter what you talk about, it's going to get to that subject. It just comes up over and over again, but it brings up some questions, some challenging questions. If it is true, then what does it mean to our responsibility to share the gospel? If it is true... All right, how, how in the world are we responsible to accept Christ? And we're going to unpack that all. So with the table set and the dinner plate abundantly full with a piece of meat, many of us won't even want to chew on. As non-cherry-picking consumers of the word of God, we must eat it, apply it, believe it, and here it is, ultimately live it. Which, by the way, blows our mind. How do you live the elect of God? Oh, it is a powerful application because all of God's word, collectively, not selectively, is our authority. And church, would you agree with that? Amen? It's his word. That's why you're here. I hope that's why you're here. Because we're here just to, to teach us some Ted interesting things. Our lives will never be transformed. And worse, we'll never fully know our, well, we'll never fully, we won't know our God more. So take a look at these verses, all right? Let us not forget the context. Oh, to have a hook here. Wouldn't that be great if there was a hook here? Who here wants to put a hook there by next week? I need a volunteer. Barb Menda Menda, all right? Needs to be brass, maybe gold-plated. Let's move forward, all right? For God's glory. Here we go. Let us not forget the context of last week. The Jews are filled with anger and jealousy, verse 45, in your text. Let's remember why. Paul is teaching that salvation is available to the Gentiles, which you will see in your text as God fears, without having to submit to Jewish regulations, i.e. baptism, circumcision, law, and ritual. They were angry because Paul was teaching that Gentiles could be saved through Jesus Christ, absent from full conversion to Judaism. And they don't like that. So what I want you to grab here, what angered the Jews delighted the Gentiles. 
what angered the Jews delighted the Gentiles. In fact, it says right here, Gentiles heard this and they began to rejoice. All right? But just because, here it is, now here's our first application. And it is true of us here today, not just in the church a couple thousand years ago. Just because all of the Gentiles are rejoicing at this news does not mean that all of them in the synagogue that day are, are saved. It doesn't mean that all of them have come to salvation, just like all of us here today who are under the shadow of God's blessing, who hear God's word and are in community and church, just like us today who worship here under the blessings of God, are not all truly saved. Because let me just say this, emotion does not save the soul. Experience does not save our soul. Not all those rejoicing are saved. It says right here, but really only as many who have been appointed unto eternal life. Who have been appointed to eternal life. Notice two things here in this context. Jews are out of line for receiving the salvation here. We find that in verse 46. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And Gentiles are now in line in receiving salvation. As many have been appointed unto eternal life believe. Verse 48. So the question is who went and done this? And the answer is God. God did this. The Bible wholeheartedly affirms that in salvation, man does not choose God. Man does not choose God, but rather God chooses man. In fact, before we get too defensive on that, let us remember the words of Jesus who who literally said this, no one, this is Jesus talking, no one can come to me in salvation unless it is granted to him first by my heavenly Father. My friends, that there is a giant piece of theological meat. This is a dense piece of meat, is it not? Our spiritual jaws will be hurting by the end of the day. But hear this, my friends. What are we to believe? Do we believe what God said? Or do we believe what makes us feel good? What are we going to believe? The dense teaching of God's clear, written, inspired words? Or the easy believism of Christian radio DJ theology? Now you may say, why are you always so mean to Christian DJs? It's fun, all right? No, I'm just... On a a general note, one of the reasons I bring that up is because the majority of the time, if you listen on, on spiritual radio, they're not trying to share the gospel as much as they are trying to market the gospel. Churches are guilty of that as well. And when you bring something to market, when you bring something to market, you minimize the unwanted and you maximize the desired. My friends, that is not the gospel. We have to teach it all. In fact, so absolute is the doctrine of election that the names of those whom God chooses for salvation are written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, before the, if I can bring your mind back to Genesis, before the waters of the earth even quivered at the presence of the Trinity over the earth, our names were already written down. That should push us on our heels, spiritually speaking. 
When I was a kid, and maybe you can relate to this, when I was a kid growing up in Baptist circles, and I was told this, that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, uh, God then, because of what I decided, wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he would never erase it again. How many here were ever raised generally like that? Anyone at all? Like God's up there with a pen going, oh, God, please, Corey, please see the value in, in receiving me. So you know what I did? I prayed a prayer I didn't understand that required no repentance, no relationship, no desire for Jesus. I was told my name was then written in the Lamb's Book of Life and it could never be lost I tremble at how many believe people believe in a salvation they do not have because we have promoted a gospel that is not in the word of God. In fact, I want you to see this verse. Look at this. Everyone's name, here it is. Everyone's name who has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Here's a question. Please answer it. When were the names written down? Talk to me, church. Long before you ever shifted in your dead spiritual state. That's how sovereign our God is. Now, that sovereignty can scare us, but let me tell you, that sovereignty is an unbelievable act of grace. And it explodes in how we live our lives. Here's the question, and we just answered it. When was every name written in the books of life? Before the foundations of the world. And let me just tell you something. There are no second additions to the book of life. God will not go, I forgot Kurt Detzler, which on our side, we would get that, would we not? No, I'm teasing Kurt. He doesn't miss a thing. My friends, our names are not written in the book of life when we get saved. We are saved because our names have already been written in the book of life. This is one of, by the way, this is one of the ultimate expressions of the grace of our God. The grace of our Lord extends far beyond the cross where he died. May his name be glorified for that, but it it extends even further than that. But rather, his grace explodes from the cross in eternity past before the foundations of the world where he wrote our names in the book of life before we could ever even make a decision for him. Talk about a free gift. It is so free, we we can't even ask for it without him. That same grace explodes into eternity future when a believer will stand at the beam of seat in the imputed righteousness of Christ, not because of what he has done or what we have comprehended, but because God chose us to be the, floor, the foundations of the world. And with that in mind, as you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, clothed in his righteousness, because you don't have any of your own. His grace is so un- unbelievable that, that in his grace, this will blow your minds, he will give you crowns. He will give you rewards for the things you have done for him. And in that moment, will our hands not tremble at the thought of being rewarded for him doing everything? The Bible tells us that there will be those who fall on their knees and throw the rewards at the feet of Jesus. 
for then they will all fully understand for the first time the gracious, infectious, elective work of a God and cry out and say, you alone, you alone, you alone, nothing of mine, not us. We are, are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for in, now grab this, all things, in all things have their being, including our salvation. Oh, church, do we not see clearly that predestination is not the death of God's grace? It is the exalted zenith of his unmerited favor. Now, some of us be thinking, if God chose some for salvation, then is he not responsible for choosing some for damnation? That's the question that pops up, right? How can a loving God who died for all possibly introduce this theological concept? Well, one, because he's God, amen? Who can be his counselor? This kind of a thought has a theological term. It's called the decree of reprobation. It it, it is when God predestined people to be objects of his wrath. I want to start out here. That is an inadequate definition. It is short-sighted by not looking at the complete narrative of God's word. It is not fully descriptive of the whole biblical narrative. Let us remember that doctrinally, who is responsible for their sin and their depravity? Who is responsible? Talk to me, church. We are. We are. God simply, oh, let me see here. Man is responsible for his sinless state, whether it be in the garden in Adam called original sin or today in our seminal headship and our total depravity and sin nature. We love sin. I want to say this slowly, not because you're slow, but because it's, it's dense. Have you ever, how many here have ever bit off more than you can chew and you just need to, mechanically work that. Anyone at all? You just, mm. That's when someone asks you a question. Hey, how was your day? Mm. We're going to chew this slowly. Okay, you ready for this? God passing by the non-elect did not bring about their destruction. God passing by the non-elect did not bring about their destruction. You see, while divine election is the cause of salvation in the elect. It is not the cause of damnation for the non-elect. One does not equal the other. God simply decided to leave the non-elect alone in their self-chosen sins and the consequences that come with that. Romans chapter 9, 22 through 23. I'm going to try and give an example of this and this will fall short. Because God's, God is, who can comprehend him? But this is the best my little sinful, piney little mind can do. If every one of us in this room, I can ask you a question. How many here look back at how you acted as a child and are shocked you are still alive? Anyone at all? You know, I'm going to jump this creek in a bike, you know, and there's gravel rocks on the bottom. If our kids that, did that today, we would, you know, sniper shoot them with a tranquilizer before they died. How many here just 
made ramps made out of flimsy wood and flung through the air. How many here never wore a helmet growing up? Sissified our culture, I'm telling you what. I used to, my brother had a compound bow. I used to take arrows, real arrows. (laughs) You've done this too? (laughs) They would disappear. And then you realize this is really dumb, right? Have you ever done? Well, yeah, you have. I just by looking at your brother, I, I just we the arrow would go away, and all of a sudden, sometimes the arrow would go boom right there. And you're like, oh, next time, let's shoot it higher, but run under something. One time, it hit my neighbor's roof, just boom right in the roof. I didn't have the courage to go tell him. It stayed up there for over a year. <laughs> you do what any good Christian does. I don't know. I, don't know. I didn't do that. Have you done that? I'm asking you a question, sister. Have you? No, okay. If all of us did that, we took a bow and arrow and we shot it straight up. And for the sake of our illustration, every single one of your arrows and mine hit the person who shot it. Are you seeing that picture? Boom! And we all go, we'll be fine. Boom! All right? And Dr. Fig walks in. Dr. Fig is a member here, all right? He is a colorectal surgeon, which might give us an indication where we were hit by the arrows, but that's a bad analogy there, all right? And we're all hit by arrows. Now, I understand I probably could have found a better picture of Dr. Fig, so I want to fix that for him here and make sure that he feels comfortable in this illustration, all right? I got permission. And every arrow comes down and it hits us, and we all fall to the ground terminal. And Dr. Ryan Fig comes in here, and, and he begins to rescue several of us. Here's the question, or here's the point. While it is true that Dr. Fig is the cause of our rescue, it is not true he is the cause of our demise. Who's the cause of our demise, church? Who's the rescuer? Dr. Fig. His actions save. Our actions condemn. This is the balance of the Bible that teaches between the total sovereign choice of God and the full responsibility of man. Oh, is not our God graciously sovereign and is not man personally responsible? And it says here, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. You want to know what comes up to my mind when I read this? Why? If God is sovereign and who is going to be saved, why are you spreading the word? They'll just come. Why do I need to spread the gospel of everyone who's saved is predestined and written before the foundations of the world? Why share the gospel with this piece of doctrinal meat? Well, there's a couple reasons, so let's fly very low here. First one, because God told us to. And that alone should be enough. Amen, church? He is our authority. He is our king. We are not asking, like the Israelites, for another king to be like all the other nations. He is our king. He is our authority. And if he tells us to jump, we ask what? How high? 
And for a white Dutchman, that will not be that high. I will. You can slip paper under my vertical leap, though. I'll tell you that. Number two, the Bible, why should we share the gospel if there's the elect? The Bible describes us before salvation as blind, captive, enemies, and spiritually dead in our sins. That doesn't describe one person at a time. All those descriptors describe the one person. We are blind. We cannot see it. We are deaf. We cannot hear it. We are enslaved in our sins. We cannot free ourselves. And we are dead. If we leave this church today thinking a person's salvation depends on the ability to understand, then we have not only no hope, we have no guarantee that anyone would ever come to Christ because they are blind, captive, enemies, and dead. But in fact, here it is, we have a guarantee that no one will ever be saved. The Bible plainly states, no one seeketh after God of their own free will. No one comes to me unless the Father draws them and gives them to his Son. Good luck evangelizing dead people. Good luck. Go to the graveyard and preach your heart out. We say, well, that, that, that would be a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand without the predestination of our souls. It is the doctrine of election that guarantees that the word of God will not come back void. We love that verse, right? It'll never come back void. You want to know why the the gospel and his word will never come back void? Because God has guaranteed that there will be fruit before the foundations of the world. That ought to encourage us, by the way. A guarantee that some will be saved. But let me add even more reasons why we should share the gospel if the elect are going to be saved no matter what we do. Here it is, because God ordained the gospel to be the means by which the elect get saved. In short, if I could simplify this, sharing the gospel is the irresistible dinner bell that calls the elect home. The gospel is the irresistible dinner bell that calls the elect home. And we are commanded to ring that bell everywhere we go. Now, with this truth still ringing in our ears, pun intended, I want you to hear or at least see the words of Jesus. Now, you may have heard or seen this verse thousands of times on funny, emotionally fuzzy, motivational, inch-deep, precious moments posters. How many here remember when precious moments were expensive? Anyone at all? Like a little figurine, that'll be $120. Like, what? Look how fuzzy this is. It angers me. I want you to hear it maybe for the first time with everything we just unpacked. You do not believe because of your total depravity. Because you you shot an arrow in in the sky. You did that. You do not believe because you are not my sheep, non elect. My sheep hear the dinner bell of my voice, the gospel. And I know them before the foundations of the world. And they follow me. And when they hear my voice, predestination, and I give it to them, a free gift. 
and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand, eternal security. My Father who has given them to me, the elect, the predestination. And I and my Father are one. I have the authority to say this. My friends, this is not a precious moments poster. It is the deep, never-changing, infectious, irresistible call of God on his elect through the means of hearing the gospel through our divine shepherd, Jesus Christ. The elect hear and the elect will respond. My friends, do you know what this means? It means we have a guarantee that when we share the gospel, there will be those who come to salvation. Oh, may this rest on our hearts and open our eyes today. Our evangelistic achievements are not dependent on how relevant our outreach is. Our church growth is not determined by how professional our services appear. They are, they, we do not reel in the elect with a, with a concert. But rather when we understand that people will come to salvation when we simply and faithfully share the gospel, which is the voice of God calling his elect home, oh, let us ring that infectious, irresistible bell. Now there are some more verses here, and frankly, they make me laugh. And we'll go through them quickly because of time. I'm doing pretty good, so I'll slow down. We don't have much time, so let's condense it here. They incited the devout women of prominence. Now, because of the word devout women, we are looking at upper-class Gentile women who were proselytes or uh, attracted to Judaism, like like God-fears. Okay? These are Gentile women in the area who are attracted to Judaism. It describes Jewish upper-class women. Now, Why did they go and get the women first? This kind of makes me smile a little bit. Notice, by the way, who is inciting them. It's not Gentiles. They're rejoicing. At least the elect are rejoicing. But but the Jews are inciting this. All right? We see that right there. That's kind of funny. God's word is so real. It's not distant, dead text. It's about our souls. It's about our lives. It's about who he is. And in our responsibility to him and his total sovereignty over us. I like this. Let me unpack this with a fun question. There is a saying that goes like this. Man may be the head of the home, but the woman is the what? Talk to me, church. It's the neck. What would what, you say? I heard different names. Anyone else? What? The neck that turns the head. Okay. Here's another one. Hell knows no fury like a woman's what? All men said what? Scorn. I was looking for amen, but okay. (laughs) Now, now that we live in an overly sensitive gender culture, some of us us might go, oh, that's stereotism. Just relax, all right? Take a chill pill. Not everything is an 11, all right? The reason these are Proverbs is because generally there is truth in them. So they instigate the Jewish women first. All right? Now in our culture here, we might get upset with that, but here it is. These jealous 
Jews are not dumb. By inciting the upper-class Gentile woman, it creates a chain reaction with the leading men of the city, which would be Gentile governmental leaders, who are quick, here it is, who are quick to kick them out of the district. Why? Because the women are pushing it. Now, you want to control a man quickly? Get his wife or loved one on your side and watch the relational dominoes fall. It worked so well that they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And and here it is, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and they went on. Now this is an ominous symbolism. In Paul's day, the Jews were scrupulous not even to bring Gentile dust back into Israel. Remember that term? They called them goyism. The goyims, the, the, the nationalists, blech, and they would spit. They didn't even want the dust to come back with them. As Jews walked home into the land of Israel, they would kick the dust off of their feet because they did not want Gentile dust to pollute their promised land. By doing this, it portrayed leaving defilement behind. There could be no stronger condemnation from Paul and Barnabas here. And the disciples were continually filled with joy. Why? Well, let us remember our text. Because they are the elect of God who are guaranteed that their fishing expedition for people's souls will find success through God's predestination. Oh, and because while they leave the dust behind them, they do not leave alone. They have a paraclete, which means one who comes alongside and never leaves. And that paraclete is the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it is the pneumatas agioi. And it is written for, and I'll get ready to get excited, it is written in the imperfect indicative middle voice yes you know what the indicative middle voice means a condition that continues indefinitely God seals salvation not you now Those words of that old song. I want you to think of everything we just studied. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon the the foundations of the world promise. Just to know. Thus saith the Lord. It is enough. Oh my friends. Are you not full? Do your jaws hurt? Did that not taste amazing? Maybe you didn't like the theological dinner, but that's okay. Because just like when we were kids, we have to finish what is on our plate, whether we like it or not. Amen? That's old school stuff right there. And here's why this passage is so amazing. Here's the summary in two sentences. Ready? Because we cannot cherry-pick the truth of God's Word. We find here the total sovereignty of God in election and the personal responsibility of man in his rejection. 
we find that the gospel is the means by which God calls his elective sheep and they will respond to his voice, which means we are guaranteed that his word will never come back void, which is the ultimate zenith of his grace. Oh, is not his word rich beyond description? And he never leaves us. We are indefinitely filled. No wonder the gates of hell don't stand a chance. While this message is simple enough for a child to receive, its depths cannot be plumbed by the greatest of minds. greatest thing you can ever do in life in your marriage, in your relationships in your home, and at your work is not figure out how to be a better father or mother or worker or steward or all that stuff as good as it may be what we need the most is to know our God more this is your God whether we like it or not Tonight, we're going to take a break from digging deeper. And I invite you back. I'm going to be speaking into the subject of Trinity's worship through music. I'll be speaking about what the future of our worship will be like. And if I do an excellent job at this, no one will like me. I invite you back for this important instruction on how our church worship will look like. Gracious Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are God. That you are sovereign. You are gracious. We love you, we submit to you, and we want to be more like you. In Christ's name I pray, Lord, start with me. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.